0: We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them, that They should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar, a program that reviews the stories of God's persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock.
1: Dear listener, greetings and a warm welcome. Thank you for tuning into the program again. I'm delighted to have your company. This program is about the persecuted and those who have been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, without question, Jesus is the most famous martyr of all time. He split time. We have AD, we have BC. We see in Jesus someone that has made a significant difference to the world and the way we even look at history. So him being the most famous martyr we can also attest to the fact that his death was more than martyrdom. Jesus was not only martyred simply because of an ideal or belief that he was not going to give up. Jesus was not simply martyred because there were people that hated his religious views and practices. Now, you know, martyrs normally have their liberty restricted involuntarily, their lives are taken without their permission because they're not prepared to compromise their religious beliefs and practices. They do not choose to die or even want to die. While they could save their own lives by abandoning their faith, they would rather die than abandon their religious views and beliefs. Freedom of conscience and fidelity to God is dearer to them than their own mortal existence itself. Now, Jesus' death was different from the other martyrs. And as we look at it, Jesus said concerning his own impending death, in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, he makes this statement. He says, "'I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself.'" I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Now, how many martyrs do you know that could actually make that statement and deliver on it? I mean, it's easier to say something, isn't it? But can you prove it by taking your life up again and resurrecting? Well, we know that that was the case with Jesus. And if I asked you, why would anyone who is of sound mind choose to lay down their life when they have the power to lay it down and they have the power to take it again. If this was a script for some superhero movie, at the last minute, just as the villains thought that they had full control of their victim or full control of Jesus, he would exercise his latent superpowers that they weren't aware of and overpower his enemies and escape. But we read that Jesus did not do this. His purpose and mission included him laying down his life. Now we can read in Philippians chapter 2 from verse 5 to verse 8 the following. It tells us, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What an incredible few verses that is, talking about the condescension of Jesus who was in the form of God. He was made of no reputation by becoming a man and being found in the likeness of man. He humbled himself and became obedient even to that terrible, cruel death of the cross. Now, what cause would be worthy of such a great sacrifice for Jesus to take, to be in the form of God and then humble himself and to become a man? Not only that, but even succumb, allow himself to be put to death and through the most torturous, cruelest of deaths, the death of the cross. Why would Jesus, who was God, a being with unrestricted powers, many of which we do, don't do even understand or don't even know of, allow himself to be put to death. He could have easily have saved his life if he wanted to. What would have been the benefit of Jesus doing that and who would have been benefited from such an endeavor? The next few programs of Soul Under the Altar will answer some of these questions. We will also look at the principles involved in the persecution of Jesus by the religious authorities and also the involvement of the civil authorities. We will learn much about why people are persecuted for their faith and also what we can expect in the future persecution predicted by the Bible. So coming back to this question, what cause would be worthy of such a great sacrifice and who would benefit? Well, Jesus told a parable that helps us understand this. It's the parable of the shepherd and his herd of sheep. Jesus said that he was the good shepherd, and in John chapter 10 and verse 11, Jesus says the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Now, this statement begs the question, why would anyone give their life for a flock of inferior animals? Now, if we can relate to that a little bit, we know that God is way, way superior to us, infinitely infinitely superior. Well, now, why would an infinite being come and give his life for finite beings? So the same way we would consider a shepherd giving his life for the sheep. So, dear listener, if you were employed as a shepherd and a wolf came to attack the flock, you're looking after the flock, how would you respond? Now, typically, if the sheep were cared for by an employee... The employee would not be prepared to risk his life for animals that did not belong to him and he would consider inferior to himself. He would look to protect himself first and foremost, and typically would either climb the nearest tree or flee for safety. Now Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 12 and 13 says the following, But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Now the wolf here represents the devil, and he can also represent persecution. Will we remain faithful to God and His trust, or will we try to save our life and flee when persecution comes? Remember, Jesus made this this statement He who tried to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. And we are talking about eternal life here. So the hireling will flee, but not so the good shepherd. The good shepherd owns the sheep. And in John chapter 10 and verse 14, we are told. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. Jesus knows his sheep, and his sheep also know him. The good shepherd knows his sheep personally and individually, for he knows them by name. And in John chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, Jesus says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. The fact that each sheep is known by name shows the personal connection the Good Shepherd has with each of his sheep, and that each sheep matters to the Good Shepherd. This is also demonstrated in Jesus' teaching, where he told the parable of the lost sheep. We can read about this in Matthew chapter 10, from verse 12 to 14. Jesus says, What do you think? The Good Shepherd goes in search of every lost sheep. If they are attacked by ravenous wolves, he defends and protects them even to the risk of his own life. The flock in the Good Shepherd's parable represents the church. The flock also represents the whole world in another context. For example, the Bible says in Psalms chapter 100 and verse 3 Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We are the sheep of His pasture, and Jesus, as the Good Shepherd, gave His life for you and for me. Now, to answer our first question, what cause would be worthy of such a great sacrifice that Jesus would condescend from being God, being in the form of God, to humble himself and to become a servant, to be found in fashion as a man and even surrender and submit himself to death, even the cruel death of the cross. Who would benefit? Jesus' death was a payment, a redemption for a lost possession, a reclaiming of property that had been stolen away from him by fraudulent means. The wolf, that is the devil, had attacked the sheep and scattered them. In this parable, Jesus likens the wolf to a thief and a robber. The sheep had been stolen away by the devil and scattered. John chapter 10 verse 10 tells us that the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And then Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. We are God's treasured possession created by his own hands for an abundant life and ultimately for eternal life. When man came from the hand of God, he was made to be like him. And man was a being that had the ability to learn and to grow and to be more and more like his maker as time went by. God gave man an abundant life. He gave him the ability to learn and to grow and to develop, ever growing and learning and finding more and more joy in what they learn and the knowledge of God, their creator. Man was made to be like God in image and likeness. The signature of God was upon him. And if you look at artists, artists will only put their signature on a work of art that they deem to be worthy of their name and also will enhance their reputation. When the Son of God had formed Adam's shape, he then, in the most intimate act of all of creation, breathed into his nose the breath of life. And man instantly went from a lifeless sculpture, a lifeless form, to becoming a living soul. Adam was the prototype. And from this man, the woman was also formed. And from this pair, after they fall into sin, all of humanity was born. The amazing thing is that although Adam and Eve joined the ranks of the opposition by accepting the lies of the devil, God did not cease to love them or care for them. Just like that one sheep that was missing, God also came in search of them. Even when they tried to hide from God because they felt ashamed, because they were afraid, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, God came in search of them and spoke encouragement to them about a way to save them from impending death an eternal separation from God through a descendant of theirs. Now, how was God going to do this? Isaiah 52 verse 3 says that we have sold ourselves for nothing and that we would be redeemed without money. So buying us back was one thing, but how could God also win back our affections after he had bought us back? Now, if you lose something and then make every effort to regain the possession again, but there is no cooperation or it doesn't work like it used to, or there's no relationship, whatever it may be, say it's a relationship. Even after ownership of the relationship is restored, if the other person in the relationship remains dysfunctional and they are not really interested, what have you really achieved? Well, you have not achieved anything really, even if you've won something back, but the relationship is destroyed. So in the process of buying us back from the penalty and the power of sin, God also had to demonstrate His love for us to win our affections back, to reestablish loyalty to Himself willfully on our part. God would not only buy us back, but He would court us through the gospel and through the revelation of His love for us through Jesus Christ. And the power of His love would draw us and win us back. The good Lord said to us in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. The love of God for mankind, for you and for me, would be demonstrated in the transaction of paying a ransom for all of us. Jesus came to buy back, to make payment for all the souls that had been sold out to the devil and his murderous intentions. We were sold out for the pseudo-promise which has turned out to be the biggest lie ever told, a lie that has brought about the genocide of an entire planet. Satan stole away by fraudulent means the objects of God's supreme regard, His supreme love, the ones He had owned and made, the ones He loved. What has been the result of this? Death, misery, suffering, grief, and pain. People striving for the ascendancy over one another striving to have power and authority over others, one-upmanship, revenge, hatred, bloodshed, murder, the abuse of others weaker than themselves, taking advantage of the vulnerable, gratifying their desires at the expense of the physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being of others, the denial of the God-given rights to freedom and freedom of conscience, which is manifested in persecution and martyrdom and so much more. We could go on and on with a long list in regards to what has been the outflow of this poor decision on the part of Adam and Eve and also the lie that was sold to us by the devil. But this has been the result of our great-grandparents buying into this attack on truth and on God and falling for the lies of the devil. One of them, that is Eve, our great-grandmother, was deceived. The Bible says the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The other, our great-grandfather, Adam, gambled on the empty promises of the serpent, which was passed on by the woman and passed on to him while she apparently showed him more affection and regard than she had previously done. Adam literally took the bait and ate the forbidden fruit while hoping for the best. So, in the process of redemption and of reconciliation between God and mankind, God had to eliminate our sins, our fears, our anger, our hatred, our griefs and our sorrows. And how was he to do this? As a willing recipient of our sins and our griefs and sorrows. And the curse that comes from disobedience, all these were rolled onto Jesus. We see in the life of Jesus someone who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It was foretold by Isaiah the prophet 700 years earlier that Jesus would be this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah, funny enough, the the prophet who wrote about this, was also martyred for his faith by evil men who killed him by sawing him in two. Now the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, He, that is Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, the men he came to save, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The astounding thing is that, in spite of this foreknowledge that God has, that Jesus has, knowing that he would have to endure all these things, Jesus still accepted this mission to save you and me because he knew some would respond to it, not all, but some would respond to his love and accept and receive the gospel of salvation, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, we also read in Isaiah 53 verse 4 that surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But... He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Now, what was Jesus' stated mission? We can read about this in John chapter 3 and verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now this is wonderful news, right? God doesn't want to condemn the world, God wants to save the world, and God sent his Son, and Jesus' mission was to save the world, not to condemn it. Now even the angels announced to the shepherds on the field that night the same intent, and we find this in Luke chapter two and verse fourteen, where the angel said, Peace and good will toward men. So you would think that the reception of the Savior of the world would be warm and cordial. But not so. Not if we read the Bible. We read in John chapter 1 and verse 11, where it says that Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, of all people, you would think that his own, his own people, should have been the foremost in welcoming and receiving him. But why Would they not accept Jesus? If Jesus was a good man, if Jesus was a man who preached love and acceptance, if Jesus was there for them to redeem them and save them, why was he despised and rejected by men? As we've read in Isaiah 53, verse 3. Why did even his own reject him? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in John chapter 3, and we can read from verse 19 and verse 20. Remember, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Then Jesus says, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. So how strong were their feelings towards Jesus? And did it manifest itself so far that you could actually call it hatred? Well, Jesus makes a statement on that regarding the hatred of the world and we read in John chapter 7 and verse 7. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says, but it hates me because, so this is the reason for it, I testify of it that its works are evil. So whose works were originally evil? Was it not the devil? And how is it that the testimony of Jesus' life, his works, his words testified to the evilness of this world? Well why we may ask It's because the whole world had swapped allegiances They had swapped allegiances By deception of the devil And they had bought into a lie But it had changed their nature And their nature had become just like the devil Who wanted to be like the most high Remember the temptation offered to Adam and Eve Was you will be like God And they thought by transgression They could be like God Just like the devil wanted to be like God So this alliance had made us conform to the likeness of the devil. He was evil and we by following him became evil as well and therefore our works also became evil. Continual conflict has been brought to into this world. We blame others for our mistakes. Our egocentricity which was born out of a desire to be like God has made us so unlike God. Adam was made in the likeness of God, and the image of God has been so marred in humanity that only traces of it still remain. Now, Jesus is the opposite of this all. His love, his miracles, his compassion attested to his love for all mankind. He was, in fact, God manifest in the flesh, but he came as a servant of all. Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, in John chapter 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. So the image and the likeness of God was restored in humanity through Jesus Christ. He was just like God the Father. His works, his teachings, all demonstrated the works and teachings of the Father. Jesus said, what I see from the Father, I show you. And what I hear from the Father, that I teach you. Jesus showed love and forgiveness even to his enemy. Now here is where the question needs to be asked. Did Jesus only die for his friends or did his death include those who hated him as well? Did the death of Jesus include his enemies? Did the death of Jesus also pay the price for their sins? Well, we can look at Romans chapter 5 and 10 and see what the Apostle Paul says about that because Paul the Apostle was actually a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of God. He consented often to the death of people And the martyrdom of people Including that of Stephen Known as the first New Testament Well not the first New Testament martyr But the first Christian martyr After the death and resurrection of Jesus And we read in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 For if when we were enemies We were reconciled to God through the death of his son Much more having been reconciled We shall be saved by his life So who were reconciled to God through the death of his son? His enemies, the enemies of God. But I'm going to read verse 6 as well. For it says, For when we were still without strength, so those are the people who are weak, without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So while we were without strength, while we were ungodly, Christ died for us. And then verse 8, But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, Christ died for those who were without strength. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for sinners and he died for his enemies. Now, we can contrast that with the ability that some people may have to lay down their life. Now, they won't lay down their life for a very bad person. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man one will yet die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. Just contrasting the fact that God in his Son demonstrated his love to us dying for sinners the ungodly those who were without strength and those who were even classed as his enemies now just as we wrap this up does the bible say that jesus was persecuted we can read in john chapter 5 john chapter 5 and verse 16 The Bible says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and it says the Jews persecuted Jesus. Now really, how is that possible? Weren't the Jews the ones who had accepted the God of creation to be their God? Had they not shifted allegiances back to God? So how then is it possible that Jesus could come to his own and they would not receive him? It looks like during the recovery effort after the first fall of our great-grandparents that there had been more falls or a succession of falls you would like. More lies were accepted and swallowed, and therefore our condition deteriorated even further. But these falls have been even more deceptive and more subtle in nature. People have fallen for yet another lie. The devil would make them think that they had swapped allegiances while they still served the old master. After sin entered the world, anyone who swapped allegiances back to God was persecuted by those who would not return. To confuse matters further, some of those who had claimed to have returned to God had only swapped allegiances on paper but still had their heart in the old life and were still really in heart serving the old master. And we see this in the first two worshippers. The one had swapped allegiance to God, and this was demonstrated by his faith and obedience to God, Abel brought a blood sacrifice symbolizing the sacrifice of Jesus. Cain, his brother, brought a sacrifice without blood. This sacrifice was from the produce of the earth which he had cultivated. Cain's sacrifice represented his own works and showed a lack of faith. His sacrifice demonstrated a confidence in his own merits. He did not want to accept the conditions of repentance and self denial required to be saved through a blood sacrifice. He, a worshiper himself, now pay attention to this, he, a worshiper himself, killed his own brother who was a true worshiper of God. Like his sacrifice, his evil actions demonstrated his allegiance to the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. He killed his brother and Abel became the very first martyr. Dear listener, thank you for joining me today on Souls Under the Altar. Please join me next time as we continue our study of Jesus who was more than a martyr.
0: Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you would like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.